Heavenly Father, we just uh, ask for your help in this room today. Lord, we come to this time when we get a chance to hear from your scriptures. And Lord, these scriptures are, are alive and active. They, they will teach us and guide us and instruct us in how to live life. And so, Lord, I pray that our hearts and our minds are very open to your word. Lord, I pray that you help us to understand your word and then help us to put it into practice. Lord, I, I know sometimes our hearts can be closed. And I pray, Lord, that you would just remove any barriers or any distractions from us hearing from you. Lord, I truly believe every week that you bring us to this place. You draw us to this place. It's not by accident that we're here today. And so, Lord, I pray that you speak to each and every one of us in this room. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Let me ask you a question as we begin. What is that thing in your life that just freaks you out? What, what is it that, if it were to happen, it sends you into an immediate panic state. You're like, oh my goodness, I don't want to deal with that. According to Gallup, a snake will do it for most folks. How many people in here are afraid of snakes? Now, some of you are either lying or the stats are wrong. I'm one of those who are terrified of snakes. But according to Gallup, one of the largest phobias at 51% of Americans are snakes. Terrified of them. Second to that is public speaking. So 40% of you do not want my job. That's good. That gives me job security that you guys don't want to do what I'm doing. And 36% of you are afraid of heights. Interesting stats. What is it that freaks you out today? Fear comes in many forms. For many of us in this room, fear comes when we start talking about evangelism or witnessing. Some of you are starting to sweat in your seat already. You're like, oh my goodness, that's the topic today. Get me out of here. Oh, I think I hear my baby crying. Let me go check on that baby. I don't want to talk about it. If you're a Christian, that freaks you out. Sometimes you're like, I don't know what to say. Why don't they ask me a question? How will I answer that question? Did I say it all right? If you're not a Christian today and you're here and you're like, eh, I have someone invite me to church, I want to check this out. That word freaks you out because you're like, I'm not a project, and I can't stand when Christians trying to evangelize me. I just wish they would just care about me and quit making me a project. And so on both sides of the coin, the word evangelism or the word witnessing just kind of freaks you out. Some of you are going to sneak off to the bathroom. So if you get up today, I'm going to wonder. They're tired of hearing about evangelism. Unfortunately, many believers freak out about sharing their faith. I mean, I think some Christians would rather wrap their hands around the snake than they would share Jesus with somebody because it scares us. Some of the most common anxieties about sharing our faith or evangelism is a fear of rejection or a fear of losing a friendship or, or the feelings of inadequacy, like I'm just not adequate enough, I'm, I'm not good enough, I, I have so many hiccups in my life, so many plots where I stumble, how can I dare tell somebody else about Jesus? This week as I was preparing, a magazine came in the office in the mail called Facts and Trends put out by Lifeway. 
And they had their Lifeway Research Group, and the whole magazine was about evangelism and outreach. I thought, what timing? And I thought, I read some of the articles, and I thought, I could just sit down and read all these articles to you guys, and I don't have time to do that. But you could go there, Facts and Trends. It's, it's, it's enlightening of what's happening in our culture today and understanding what's happening in the world of outreach and evangelism. But one of the stats that jumped off the page at me talked about if you're trying to share with an unchurched or unreached, a non-Christian friend, how open are they to you sharing? And one of the, what it shared is this, that if a friend of mine, this is the non-Christian person, said if a friend of mine who really values their faith wants to talk about their faith with me, 79% of them said, I don't really mind. They're open to you sharing your faith with them. Now, I'm not a baseball player, but 79%, let's just round that up to 80 that would be someone batting 800. How many people understand that 800 is a phenomenal batting average? I mean, that would be tremendous. In other words, we as Christians could bat 800 at least in having spiritual conversations. That doesn't mean we're going to bring them to Christ and they're going to bow and witness, you know, receive Jesus and so forth, but they're at least open to say, hey, talk to me about it. That's encouraging news. That means out of your co-workers, out of ten co-workers, eight of them say, yeah, have the conversation with me. That means out of your neighbors, eight of them say, hey, let's have a conversation. That means if you're a student in school, hey, I'm open at least a conversation. Some people worried, well, I'm not going to be prepared enough to give an answer. They're going to ask me a question. I don't know how to answer it. Others fear, well, I'm going to offend someone if I talk to them. And there are many reasons a lot of us get freaked out about witnessing, especially in today's postmodern society and politically correct climate. I mean, isn't it true that sometimes we have that fear? Like, well, if I speak up, oh, no, they're going to turn me to HR. Oh, no, if I say something, my neighbors are going to get mad. Oh, no, if I say something, I'm going to offend. I mean, we live in a society that is teeming with people who live outside of the church world. People don't seem to know or care about the good news found in Jesus. They don't know the great redemptive story of the Bible. They don't even know it. And they live their lives oblivious to the good news that actually means everything to us. I hope that's one reason why you get up and come to worship. You're like, I just embrace Jesus and the good news that I receive in Jesus. It's easy to freak out in a culture that is increasingly antagonistic towards the church and indifferent to the gospel. But let me suggest to you a different perspective. The fact that you and I are alive and know Jesus today in the year 2017, I don't believe is accidental nor incidental. But that God has placed you and I in this time and in this place for such as a time as this. We have a great opportunity, church. I'm convinced that Christians today live in an incredible time to talk with people about Jesus. Most people are actually interested in spiritual conversations, but they understand the gospel less at any time in American history. Right here in central Kentucky, there are people who do not know John 3.16, for God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. There are people that you work with who do not know that verse, who have no clue what it means. What a great time to be alive. What a great time to be alive. In our scriptures today from Colossians 4, we're going to learn how to help people who are far from Christ come to know Christ. So turn your Bibles 
to Colossians chapter 4. Now, I know some of you are freaking out right now because you like to go verse by verse by verse and you want all the blanks filled in and you're going, wait a minute, Brian. Last week we were still in chapter 3 and we had that end of chapter 3 to finish off, that word where Paul talks to the wives and talks to the husbands and talks about slaves and and all those relational things. And Brian, you're going to skip right over it just for today and next week. It's so important and so much to unpack there. What we're going to do is we're going to come back to Colossians chapter 3 starting the Sunday after Easter. I'm going to spend three or four weeks talking about family relationships because there's so much in that text for us to handle. I can't handle it all in one Sunday. So for those of you that are freaking, you can relax. All right, we're just going to skip over it and come back to it. Let me remind you before we get into the scriptures today about this letter. It's written to Christians Written to Christians. The Apostle Paul, he's in prison. He has written over half the New Testament. He was in prison about a thousand miles away from Colossae. He writes a letter to the church at Colossae. says, hey, let me remind you about the decisions you made, about your faith, about who you are in Christ. He also brings warning to them about false teaching because they're starting to embrace the false teaching. And so Paul writes this letter to Christians to say, here's how you're supposed to live and here's what it means to be a Christian. So for those in this room that claim Jesus as their Savior, this letter is written to us. Now, if you haven't embraced Jesus as your Savior yet, I'm glad you're here because you get a chance to investigate what does it mean to be a Christian. And you get to know, okay, if I embrace Jesus as my Savior, what is one of my responsibilities? And Paul's laying it out to us. And so you have a day to be here to investigate and understand the call of what Christians are supposed to do. See, I, I don't think... We as Christians fully grasp the importance of what we're called to do. And I think when Paul writes this letter, I think some of that was going on in his mind. Like, I don't really think they get it. See, if we truly believe in this, do you believe in this? I'm not convinced you do. Do you all really believe in God's Word? I mean, if we really believe in God's Word, and we believe it from Genesis all the way to Revelation, and as you study the Scriptures and you read it, if we really believe it, then we really believe in heaven and hell, which is where people will spend eternity. And we know that if you are in Jesus, you will spend eternity in heaven. But if you're not in Jesus, you spend eternity eternally separated from God. And the Scriptures call that hell, which is a place of eternal torment. And if we really believe that, then we embrace the idea of sharing our faith. I just don't think we understand it. I don't think we fully grasp it because we cannot wish people into heaven. Oh, I hope that my brother gets there. Oh, I hope my neighbor gets there. Oh, I hope my classmates get there. We cannot wish people into heaven because the truth is that without a relationship with Jesus Christ, people do not go to heaven. That's the truth of the gospel. And a lot of times we don't want to share that with people because we've think we're going to freak them out or we're going to offend them or make them mad or something else. People are hurting in this world and they're living a life without direction and without purpose. And we fully grasp the importance of what we're studying today. We understand that it's our job to bring the gospel to them. It's our job, church. That's our role, is to bring this gospel message, the good news, to this world. Before we get in our text, 
I want to remind you what our mission is as a church. We say it in three simple statements. Our mission is to connect people with God, center lives on Jesus, and help change lives through the Holy Spirit. Connect, center, and change. The whole idea of connecting is evangelism. That we're going to go out and we're going to witness. That we're going to let people know about Jesus. The idea of centering is disciple making. That it's our job to help people learn how do I walk with Jesus 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. How do I walk as a disciple? And the idea of change is not what we can do, but when we reach out to someone, teach them about Jesus, learn to walk in Jesus, then transformation, that's the change that will happen through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's our job. So today what we talk about is we're talking about the first part of our mission, the whole idea of connecting people with God. And I have three keys that will help us be successful in our endeavor of reaching a hurting and dying world for Jesus to help people connect with God that I see in our text. First, Paul begins with our prayers. Such an important aspect to the success of anything we do in life, but is maybe one of the most neglected, is what kind of praying people are we? And specifically, what kind of praying people are we when it comes to reaching people who don't know Jesus? How many times do we try to say something to another person about our faith without prayer preparation? And it falls apart or doesn't go anywhere. Let me ask you this morning, do you have a list of people that you are praying for to receive Jesus as Savior? I mean, if I came up to you and said, hey, tell me the people you're praying for who don't know Christ, would you be able to say, man, i got five of them. I've got two of them. Or would you be like, um... Um, um, can we talk about sports? Because we're good about that, aren't we? We know how to talk about basketball. Could you imagine what would happen in a society if we knew the names of the people that we're praying for as much as we know the names of the players on the basketball court? I mean, we know all their names. We know their stats inside and out. How well do we know the people who are without Christ that are in our lives? Colossians 4.2, Paul says, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Prayer is something I cannot stress enough. I know if we would take prayer more seriously, we would receive results like we could never imagine. Like we never imagined. How are we to pray? As you look at this this verse 2 again, you'll see a couple things. Paul says, first of all, be devoted to, to prayer. This is an issue of perseverance. It means to courageously persist, be persistent. We need to have a list of people that we're praying for and to be praying for them continuously and religiously. In Luke 18, Jesus actually tells a parable about persistent prayer and he talks about the persistent widow. She was given justice by the judge just because she was persistent. I love it because in the text, the judge says, because this woman keeps bothering me, I will see she gets justice. I love it. She's pestering me to death. And actually, the text, the judge says, basically, I don't care about your God who gets the glory. I'm just tired of you pestering me, so I'll make sure you get justice. When is the last time you kept bothering God for somebody? So much that God says, you are driving me crazy. I'll help that person come to faith in me. Or does God say, I don't even know the last time you're talking about someone who doesn't know me. See, God loves persistent prayers. He loves it when we keep coming back to him again and again and again and again. In Matthew, he says to knock and to seek until the door is open. Which actually, when you study that text, means to keep on knocking. 
and to keep on knocking and to not stop. Take out a piece of paper. Pick up your growth guide right now. Why not start your list today as I'm preaching? God, who is it you have in my life that doesn't know you? Do you know their names? I know the neighbors on my street by name, and I pray for them. When I walk around the neighborhood, just to pray for them and pray for those neighbors. I've been praying, God, would you give me opportunities? And here's what I don't like. God, would you give me opportunities? And my neighbor that shares a fence line with me the other day, his fence blew down in a recent storm, and he got a bid of $750. I said, I think I can help you rebuild it. I don't do much building, but we're going to figure it out together. Why? Because I want my neighbor to know Jesus. And so as we dig a hole and dig out cement and reset four posts, we're going to get to know each other. Because I've been praying, God, give me opportunities. And I'm seeing God answering that prayer in a fence that falls down. I bet if you ask the person who led you to Christ, how much did you pray for me, they'd say often. They would say it was continually. They would say maybe it was months, maybe it was years, and maybe they'd say, I still pray for you. Let me ask you a question. Are you glad that someone prayed for you to come to know Jesus? I know my mom prayed for me, prayed for my brother, prayed for my sister. I know I pray for my three kids. Pray that not only now that they've received Christ, but I pray that they will walk in Christ for a lifetime. And I know many parents would say, well, I pray for my kids. But what about expanding that list to coworkers, to neighbors, to people that, that your kids are sharing sports with and being involved in activity? And so Paul says, be devoted that's persistent. Second action of prayer is that we stay alert. The phrase literally means to stay awake. No sleeping while you pray. It was used this way when Jesus chastised his disciples for going to sleep on him as he, as he prayed in Matthew 26. He's like, why are you going to sleep on me? Stay alert. Be watching. Be know what's going on. In the context, what it means is that we are aware of what's going on around us in our world that would require prayer help. And what that would mean specifically when it comes to sharing your faith is that you have a list of people that you're praying for, but that you know what's going on in their lives. You know, oh, there's been some stress there. Oh, they lost a job. Oh, their child's been sick. Because when you're aware, that's how we respond. When you're praying for someone who doesn't know Christ and you find out they've been sick and you offer to bring them some soup, instead of bringing them a preaching message, you say, to kind of bring you some soup. Or you know a neighbor's been sick, you say, can I mow your grass? And you can help them out. Oh, a coworker's been struggling. You say, hey, you want to go get a cup of coffee? Let's just talk. I'll be a listening ear. Because you're alert, then in that, we have a chance to share the gospel, share who Jesus is. Christians, we cannot isolate ourselves from this world. Cannot isolate ourselves from this world. We're told in Scripture to be in the world, but not of the world. In other words, we have to live in the culture we're in. We need to be aware while we're in it, but we don't have to do the same things the culture does. And so Paul's saying, stay alert. Thirdly, he says, be thankful. Our hearts should overflow with thanksgiving. See, I think the, the opposite of thankfulness is grumbling and complaining. If we were to take a survey in here and say, hey, how many of you would rather hang around with people who are thankful versus people who are grumblers and complainers? I would imagine 99.5% of us would say, let's hang around with the people who are thankful. There's a half a percent of people in here who just don't think right. So we would probably say, I want to be around that person who's thankful all the time. That's who we want to hang around with. We don't want to hang around with people who grumble and complain and life is so terrible. We want to hang around with people who have a heart of thankfulness. And so Paul says, be thankful. 
Yesterday, last night, I was scanning a little bit on Facebook, and one of our friends posted about how they're on this journey of thankfulness and posted a picture of a, a pile of sticks and said, I, in my journey of thankfulness today, I am thankful that I have a rake. I can rake up these sticks. My thought was, you're crazy. But to be thankful just in everything that we do and everything that we have, because who wants to be around people who grumble and complain? And so I think Paul's saying, have a heart of thankfulness because that draws people to say, I want to be around that kind of person. I want to be around that kind of person that brings joy and thankfulness. And as they're around us, then maybe we'll have a chance to share our faith. What we're called to do is to witness, but they're not going to be witness to it if we're grumbling and complaining. Colossians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 continues with what we're supposed to focus on. It says, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we, that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in change. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. You see what Paul says first? He says, we are to ask God to open the door for the gospel. I mean, we must resist the temptation of going around trying to kick doors open ourselves. God, will you open the door? God, will you show me what to say and, and when to say it? And farmers know this principle already. If any of you are on farming, you know that the farmer will go and till the dirt and get the dirt prepared and get the soil ready before planting the seed. But many times we go and we say, let's plant the seed of the gospel. We're kicking doors in and there's hard hearts that's not been prepared. Yesterday I was went to Home Depot. They had some good sales on uh, flowers and so we got a bunch of flowers and I was planting the flowers and some barrels that we have at the end of our driveway. What I have to do, I had to go and take out all the old flowers from last year, pull out all the weeds, pull out a few rocks, turn the soil over, get it all ready, and those things planted like that. Today, they're already perking up and looking great. Why? Because the soil was prepared. Paul's telling us, we need to pray. God, would you open the door of the gospel? Why? Because that's how the soil of the heart gets prepared versus us doing it. The second focus of our prayers is that God will guide us in what we say. How many times have we shot off our mouths only to have it drive a person away from God instead of driving them closer? I'm guilty. People don't necessarily need us to come and say, you're wrong, you need Jesus. The Bible says they need us to come and show them love. They need us to come and, and maybe just listen instead of speak. I, I, I've done it before. I open my mouth with no prayer, no thought or compassion towards the person to say, well, you're, you're living wrong. Well, this is wrong or that's wrong. And start telling them all it's wrong. That's not helping them. We need to pray, God, help me know when to speak. God, help me know when not to speak. God, help me know when to listen. Let God guide you and pray for words and the right timing and what to say. And believe it or not, if you go in prayer first, God, what do I say? Then it blows up the fear of, I don't know what to say or how I will answer their questions. Because when you go in prayer, it's amazing how God will give you answers for their questions. He'll give you answers. Second key to effective witnessing is our conduct. How we conduct ourselves. It's, it makes such a huge impact on the ability to reach people. Our conduct shows people what's actually really important to us. I mean, if I have nothing good to say about the church that I'm attending, and I'm complaining, you know, I go to that church, but boy, they do this wrong, or they do that wrong, or I can't believe they do this, or I'm in this small group, and you can't believe that that lady said this, and you can't believe this guy said he does that. If all we're doing is complaining about the community that we're part of, what does that tell people about the church? Who would want to come? They don't want to. 
If I'm trying to win a lost husband or a wife or a child to Christ and my attitude is negative or if I have a life that's very, uh, very little semblance of what I profess, it will be hard to win them over to God who makes no difference in my life. They're going to go, why do I want that? You're not a very happy person. If I don't have a heart of compassion towards brothers and sisters in Christ as well as those who are lost, people will see right through us and they know, is it real and genuine and authentic or is it a fake? You don't have to be perfect though. You don't have to be perfect, but you need to monitor your conduct and then be honest with people when you do fall short. Verse 5 says, be wise in a way you act towards outsiders. That means those who are not believers yet. Make the most of every opportunity. See, we're called to, to conduct ourselves with wisdom. Living in wisdom is understanding that people are watching us, especially if they know you're a Christian. You say, I'm a Christian. It is, it is understanding that for many people, we are the only Bible that they will ever read or see. Just think about that for a moment. For some people, we're the only Jesus they'll experience before they'll ever open up his great book. This is why it's so important for those in the church to love one another and to get along with one another. If I go home to my unsaved wife and I were to tell her how much I hate people and, and how I cannot stand someone and display anger and hatred toward her or towards my family, do I really think I'll have a chance to win them to Christ? No, because our conduct's not aligning with the Christ that we serve. See, if I go out and act just like the rest of the world, do you think I'll have much chance to win them to a, a new life in Christ? Say, well, you're no different. Your language is no different. Your behavior is no different. Your attitude is no different. What you watch is no different. Well, what's the difference between you and me? See, we need to be aware that our conduct does not affect the ability to reach people. And realize, we know we're going to stumble. We're going to fall short. We're going to make mistakes. And what do we do in that? We, we say, I'm sorry. And we ask for forgiveness. Do you realize that blows people away today? If you're willing to look at someone and say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean that. Will you please forgive me? They're shocked. And if we practice that in the church and outside the church, it shows them that we serve a God of forgiveness. So our conduct should enhance our outreach. The way we act should be something that actually attracts people to Jesus. What we do should, be glor should bring glory to Jesus. We are to make the most of our opportunities. How we deal with and interact with people should help them see that, we, that they have a need and that what we say is important. I really believe sometimes the largest obstacle between the loss and a relationship with Jesus are Christians themselves. Sometimes we can be the biggest obstacle. We can be our worst enemies, our own worst enemy, or we can be a real blessing in the way we live our lives and conduct. God calls us to live our lives in such a way that brings glory to God. I have seen what a positive role model can do and what a negative role model does, and you've seen it too. It's a choice we make. There's a third key to effective witnessing, and that's our speech. Touched on a little bit. The way we speak and what we say and how we say it can either be a blessing to our efforts or a roadblock. There are two things I want us to consider in speech I see in verse 6. It says, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. What's this verse say? Our speech should be what? Filled with grace. <coughs> in Bible times, 
That meant that our speech would be dotted with witty and clever sayings and remarks. What is meant here is that our speech should be the type of language which results from the operation of God's grace on our heart. That our speech changes because God's changed us on the inside. Our speech is to be something that seasons as salt. Too much salt we know ruins a good dish and not enough makes, makes no difference in the taste. We are to add flavor to the lives of those who we're trying to reach. Is what Paul's saying. Be filled with grace. The second issue concerning speech is we need to know to whom we are speaking with. I have a pet peeve when it comes to this idea of salt. Uh, some of you don't know this, but I like to cook. Probably don't do as much as I used to just because of the schedule. But when I cook, my pet peeve is this. When you put this beautiful meal out, someone puts all this food on their plate, and they grab the salt shaker before tasting. How many of you all do that? Be honest. Confession. You're confessing for your husband. I like that. Yeah, we go and salt the food before we taste it. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, I just slayed over this meal, I put pepper on it, I put salt on it, I put some seasoning on it, I made it taste really good, I even sampled it, you may not have seen that, but I got the fork down in there, or a spoon or whatever, and now you're going to take and put salt on it? Maybe you just ruined the great meal I cooked. Because it is possible too much salt will destroy the food. Now, if you don't have the right amount of salt, it doesn't taste with great flavoring. Make that comparison to what Paul is saying here. We need to know as much about people that we are dealing with as we can so that we will know how to respond to each person. Every person is different. And if we go and say, I have the salt, whoever receives that well. But see, if we're going to be alert and we're going to pray and we're going to watch our speech so that speech so that we can be filled with grace and we know who we're speaking to and we get to know them and we have our list of people that we're praying for and we start to realize, you know what, oh my goodness, they just went through this difficulty, I'm praying for them, then we know what kind of salt or how much salt of the Word to bring. One of the themes kind of lately in my life that God's been teaching me is, Brian, you've got to give a lot more grace because you don't know people's journey. Stop and think about that for a moment. As people go through life, I can look across this room and I know most of your names in here, not everybody's name, but probably most of your names. I I know about where you are today, but I probably don't know what happened to you when you were 5 years old or 10 years old or 15 years old or 20 or 25 or 30 years old possibly. And many of us have been on a journey of life with God maybe before God and with God, and there are scars and bruises and bumps and pain and suffering that you've walked through, that there's no way for me to understand that besides extending grace to you. And as I learn to walk with you, then I can extend grace. And we need to do that for people we're trying to reach. So what Paul's trying to say, I think, is, hey, have some people you're praying for. Know the condition of their heart. How do you get to know the condition of their heart? Spend time with them. Spend time with them and care about them before you try to bring the gospel to them. And then in natural relationships, you'll be able to talk about the gospel and what Jesus is doing in your life. See, our effectiveness increases as we know more about the people we're trying to reach, and we must see the things through their eyes. Got to learn to walk in other people's shoes. See, we need to know those we're trying to reach so we can better reach them. Is that not kind of marketing 101? Know who you're trying to reach. Know your client. Know your customer. Jesus taught that before any professional book or leadership book came out. Know who you're trying to care about and who you're trying to reach and trying to bring the message to. See, telling other people about Jesus, it can be intimidating. 
It can't be. We, we may have tried it once or many times and failed. We may have had people who didn't respond or maybe didn't respond greatly to us. But why do we do it? This morning as this kind of reviewing, I got here in the church by 8 o'clock, I was reviewing, and God's like, Brian, you got to bring this out. And so this is kind of like a bonus a little bit. It just wasn't really planned, but it was like, why do we do this? See, if it's just witnessing just to witness or evangelizing just to evangelize, just to make the church bigger, just to add more people, or just say, God, I did it. Did you see me? I did it. Then it's, it's all futile. I think we do it because of what God's heart is towards lost people. God wants no one to perish. But turn your Bibles to Luke, and many of you have been around here. You say, Brian, you've shared that many times. But as I was preparing this morning, it was like God was saying, bring this out again. Luke 15 shows us God's heart for people who are not with him. And I don't have time to dig through this whole text, but let's just walk through it in a summary. You can read it later. But in Luke 15, there are three parables about three lost items and what happens when the lost item is found. The first parable is the lost sheep. There's 100 sheep. One sheep wanders away from the flock, and so there's 99. And the shepherd goes off and finds that one lost sheep to bring it back in the fold and say, no, 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 you're much more safe when you stay in the fold and you stay with the community, so to speak. And that's where you're protected. And when that sheep is brought back, the scripture says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in heaven, the same way, there will be more rejoice in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. That shows us God's heart for those who say, I've been wrong and let me just turn back to God. Some of you in this room may be in that spot today. You may be in a spot where you've wandered and God has drawn you back here today. And I prayed specifically, and I prayed often on a Sunday morning, that I don't believe God has you here by accident today. He probably has you here to hear the message. He loves it when you turn and you say, you know what, I've been wandering, but God, I want to come back to you. And what the Scripture tells us is that sheep that was lost, when it's found, God said, let's throw a party. We want to party with you when you make a U-turn. We want to party with you. You say, you know what? I'm getting back on the path again with God. He goes on and tells another story about a woman who lost a coin. She had 10 coins. She lost one of them. That one coin would be a large part of her salary. And she turns a house upside down basically looking for it. It'd be like us digging through all of our couches and taking all the couch cushions off and getting down in there, pulling the couch away from the wall, trying to find that coin. She did everything. She finally found that coin. It says, rejoice me. I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. When someone doesn't know God and comes back to God, God says, I celebrate that. Why do we witness? Why do we want to evangelize? I want to be part of that great work. I want to be part of that rejoicing. I want to be part of that celebrating. I want to be part of doing what God says. This is my heart. My heart is seeing people who are not with me come to me. My heart is seeing people who are lost be found. He tells one more story about the parable of the lost son. Son is in the family, and the son says, Look, can I have my inheritance? He wants to go out and do it all by himself and live life all on his own. He takes the inheritance, goes out and lives life on his own. He squanders his life away. It got so bad, he was kind of desiring what the pigs were eating. And said, I'd like to have what they have. But he realized it was so bad, he said, I need to go back to my father. He goes back to his father, and in Luke 15, the scripture tells us that while he was a long way off, his father saw him and said, get the best fat calf, we're going to throw a party, because he saw his son off in the distance, and when his son was off in the distance, his dad basically stood on the front porch and said, come on, son, his arms are wide open. 
And his son comes back to him and the scripture says, let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. A celebration takes place every time somebody turns to God. Every time. The day when you turned to God, there were celebrating angels, there were celebrating moms and dads, there were celebrating friends. Who's in your life that God says, I want to use you to bring them to me and let's celebrate? What is God's heart? God's heart is that the lost are found. That's God's heart. Uh, You see that in this day. This day is known as Palm Sunday. Known as the day of the triumphal entry when Jesus enters into Jerusalem. But before that ever happened, God had to come down out of heaven in the form of a baby, Emmanuel, God with us. And then Jesus lives on this life for 30 plus years with one purpose, to redeem you and I. And this week he enters in Jerusalem riding on a donkey. The palm branches are waving. They're celebrating. The king is here. The king is here. How great this is. But by Friday they've already tried him and they take him to the hill of Golgotha where they crucified him. Why? Because his heart was for you and me. His heart was that we would not perish in eternity without God. His heart was that we would dwell in heaven with God forever. Why do we do what we do? Why do we take the words of Paul today seriously and go, you know what? I want to pray for people. I want to be watchful for people. I'm going to, I'm going to be seasoned with salt. I want to care about people. I want to watch my conduct. I'm going to care about my words that I speak. Why? Because that's God's heart. That's God's passion. That those who are lost, who are without Him, will come to Him. And that's why God came down out of heaven to live on this earth. And then by Friday, they have him hanging on a cross. And praise God that by Sunday, he conquered the grave. So that you and I had a chance to conquer death as well and live in eternity with God. Do you have a list of people you're praying for? I hope you've started your list this morning. Are you trying to reflect Jesus in your conduct, in your speech? Is your being filled with grace, a person who's received that grace in your life, are you giving it to others? I want to encourage you here, don't be afraid to step out of the boat. Don't be afraid to step out on the water. I know it can be scary, but step out in the water and say, God, I'm doing it. This week you have a great opportunity in that. See, Easter is one of those Sundays a year when more people are so receptive to an invite. A gentleman was leaving church this morning. I met him. I said, man, thank you so much for being here. So I think it was a second Sunday. He said, yeah. He said, they, they, my friends just called me last night and said, why don't you come to church with us in the morning, and then we'll go have lunch together. I said, so did you come because of church or lunch? He said, well, lunch sounded good, but I also came to church. Maybe that helps. You know, next Easter could be different for you. Maybe you're already preparing. What's your family going to eat? Where are you going to meet? What are you going to do? What about thinking, you know what? A neighbor, friend, co-worker. Hey, why don't you come to church with me? Come to my house for lunch. Invite a neighbor over. Invite a friend over. I bet if you ask somebody this week, I bet they'll say yes. Maybe I'll have to ask two or three people. But I bet if you invite someone, say, come. Why? Next Sunday, we're going to share about the great grace of God. About His redemptive qualities. About His great love. What a great opportunity to have a friend here. Say, you just need to be here. You just need to hear this great message. Hear what this is about. Just listen in closely. 
Pray it up and then invite this week. And then make it a pattern of life. Don't make it just, well, it's Easter, so we're going to bring some people. Or my preacher really pushed Easter time. Make it a pattern that you think in that way all the time. People typically come, again, not because of the building, not because of the great children's ministry, not because of the preacher or the pastor. They come because why? We've opened our mouths and we've invited them. 